Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. Join me, your host, Alexia Gordon, as I chat with authors writing cozy, traditional, and historical mysteries. You won't find explicit sex or graphic violence. You will find intriguing authors and quality fiction. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Author Janice Hallett joins me in the corner today to chat about her Christmas novella, The Christmas Appeal, and her new novel, The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels. Welcome, Janice. Oh, thank you for having me, Alexia. It's lovely to be here. You have one book that's out now in the U.S., The Christmas Appeal, and one that's out in a couple of months, The Mysterious Case of the Alberton Angels. Uh, Would you please tell us a little bit about your books? Yes, with with great pleasure. The Christmas Appeal is a Christmas follow-up to my original novel, my very first novel that um, was launched in the U.S. in uh, January 2022, and uh, that was called The Appeal. And it looked at a murder mystery that was set in a, in a small town centering around a drama group and a couple of new members to that group. Now, the Christmas appeal um, picks up the story really four years later. So the events are over of that novel. You don't have to have read it. But um, we pick up that drama group four years on and we make a note really of all the, the changes that have gone on in that group. As they start to um, stage a Christmas play, and that's a, a pantomime, which is quite a tradition here in, in the UK and in, in Europe. Uh, so it's a really festive, um, upbeat Christmas play for the local children. And um, Sarah Jane MacDonald, the, the, who's in charge of the group, is determined that this will go very, very well, where other uh, members of the group are determined it will not. Uh, that's all I can say really about the plot, except that at one point, a body appears and another murder mystery ensues. And the whole thing is overseen by the two young lawyers and their mentor who appeared in the appeal to read through documents for that. And they're reading through emails again now. And uh, well, all I can say really is it's a fun, fast, and festive read. It's a novella as well, so it won't take up too much of your time. It's um, an ideal sort of pre-Christmas uh, read to get you in the mood. So all the best Christmas stories have a body that shows up somewhere. <laughs> I think so. I, I agree. I think so too. And how about the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels? That one's a bit different. That's very different. Now, this is my... Um, third novel, really, my third full-length novel. I I started off with The Appeal. Then um, I launched The Twyford Code uh, a year later. And this is my third book, The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels. And for anybody familiar with my style of writing, The Appeal was written in emails between characters. Um, The Twyford Code was all transcriptions made by a particular character who, because he can't read or write, he dictates his life story. So that's all audio transcriptions. Now, the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels blends together a mixture of the two styles, really. It's presented as a dossier of research done by um, a true crime author for her latest 
book. Um, so it includes her interviews, her messages, her notes, her emails to people, and other bits and pieces that she ga- she's gathered together as she looks into a historical case. And she finds herself very quickly at loggerheads with an old rival, another true crime author, and they end up um, locked in competition to try and find a key interviewee from this historical case. It's um, That particular person was a baby 18 years ago when they were almost um, sacrificed by a cult, but luckily they weren't. Um, their teenage parents um, took them and escaped and, and all went off into the care system and um hid behind anonymity from then on so nobody's been able to interview these people but Amanda um, our true crime author and her rival Oliver feel that they are on the tail of that now 18 year old now adult baby who can now tell their story and who can now be interviewed now as soon as Amanda and Oliver are on the case they realize that this historical case isn't quite what people thought it was it's one of those cases everyone thinks they know but once you look beneath the surface something different entirely emerges it's my sort of most complicated and my most um I'd say darkest story yet I'm very proud of it actually because it deals with some quite um key issues while never losing its um momentum or its light touch and if anyone has um read it already i have this wonderful character called ellie who is amanda's assistant she transcribes everything for amanda and she doesn't hold back if she sees something that she doesn't like whether that's something amanda's done or something her uh, interviewee has said um ellie will say and we get quite um she's quite a sassy character who will um lead us through the case as much as amanda amanda does and um i love her i love that character i love the two of them they're great foils to each other now your books being written as as collections of of documents and emails and whatsapp messages and and interview transcripts they they remind me of the epistolary novel which for listeners who are unfamiliar with that genre is a work of fiction written in the form of documents like letters so i mean do you consider your works to be modern epistolary novels and how did you decide on that on this unique format for your stories I definitely consider them modern epistolary novels, and I'm a huge fan of the Victorian novelists who have, who were quite fond of the the letter or two, the epistolary novel themselves. And I think I might have picked that up. I did an English degree, and I, I majored on the Victorian, so I think by osmosis that has has um, worked its way into my subconscious. Um, how did I start writing like that? Do you know I didn't plan it at all. I'd been script writing for 10 to 15 years before I I took up writing a novel. And I had learned to deliver character through dialogue, which is is generally what the script writer does. And um, as soon as I started writing novels, I almost instinctively wrote them as what people would say. And if you think about emails and WhatsApps, texts, letters, it's all communication between characters. So that was quite a natural link for me to make from script writing to letter writing, to to letters from, from people expressing their characters and expressing how they feel about other characters through what they write. And um, it happened by accident. I, I really didn't sit down to write an epistolary novel, but that's what came out. You also have a background as a speechwriter. So did the experience of basically 
almost literally putting words in people's mouths? Did that help uh, create uh, novels where you have to put the actual things people are saying, different people are saying to each other there without them sounding like they're all coming from the same person? That's absolutely true. It definitely did teach me an awful lot. And of course, the one thing about writing speeches for people, as opposed to writing novels or even scripts, is the person is real and um, they've got things to say. So that was it was it made it really hard because, of course, they had their opinions, whereas my characters in my novels don't have have opinions. I can I can give them opinions. Uh, Speech writing is is totally different. So I learned an awful lot um, working with people to put words in their mouth with their with their consent if, if you like so that was um it's really interesting but I do prefer writing uh, for people who don't exist and, and bringing them into existence with what they say I think that's um that's where my skill lies and I certainly um I certainly enjoy it more than than actual speech writing for people now, in, in your books, the, the documents have to do what things like dialogue tags and exposition do in other novels. So what are some of the challenges of crafting a story arc or a plot from, uh, you know, what on the surface appear to be just, you know, and I'm quoting for your, from your books, a bundle of correspondence or a bundle of documents, archived research material? I think one of the main challenges I have is establishing a sense of place for my writing in a, a regular novel as you said you can just the novelist will describe the scene for you and some do it so amazingly well I mean people talk about atmospheric novels and we know we can all pick up our favorite novelists who will give you a real sense of time and place through their prose I don't have that luxury when I'm writing from different characters points of view some of the characters I I write from that they're not particularly articulate I mean you can you can read things into what they say, um, but they're not articulate characters. Um, so I have to find other ways to um, talk about where we are and how um, how the landscape is changing, if it is. So I'll sometimes uh, get around that by having characters say where they are. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing from the train. I'm on the train. I'm you know in the bedroom. I'm uh, at home. And so that's one way around it. But otherwise, I'll I'll treat character as a kind of location. That sounds really, really weird. But I think when you're with a person, as people read my books, they are with the characters. And so that sense of atmosphere, that sense of location will be where they are in their personality. Because while I'm writing, I always think of myself as the character I'm writing from. So I jump into into that different character, which is why I'm always stuck when people ask me, what do your characters look like? Because I never see them. I'm always writing from their, their point of view. So I try and create that sense of place by creating it through the character. So you'll change with every new email you read, with every new um, interview transcription you read, it will be a different emotional place rather than atmospheric or locational place. Your books are also mysteries, which uh, to me adds an additional layer of, of challenge to telling these stories through through letters and other documents. You know, it's, it, you can't just tell the story; you have to have a, a puzzle there too. So, did did you plot out the mystery first and then sort of create the documents to fit it, or did you create the documents and sort of tease the mystery puzzle out of of what you'd created, or some other method? Well, I'm I'm very much not a plotter. 
I don't uh, write anything out beforehand. I don't have um, post-it notes on a board. I don't have a huge wall of my study with string going from suspects to the crime. None of that at all. And I envy writers who do. But what I I do is set off with a blank page, a vague idea of the world, a vague idea of what I might want to, to write about. But I'll think of characters and I'll write from their point of view and gradually it will build up into a world and into a story. And I'll let those characters that come to me first, I'll let them take me through their story and their narrative. So I like my books to unfold organically. I like them to evolve. Now, that means I get to the end of my first draft after what is usually about seven to eight months of writing every day. I'll get to a first draft that doesn't make any sense to anyone but me. It's about three or four different novels all all, um, patched together. Uh, But I will know finally by that point what it's about, um, which characters are the main characters, uh, what the themes are, what the sub-themes are. I'll know all that so I can go back and start at the beginning and reverse engineer that mystery, that plot into the story that I've woven with the characters. So I'll take some things out, I'll add some things in that need to be in, I'll put some clues in, and I'll retrofit a lot of um, clues to the crime that eventually happens in that first draft. So it's very much a an organic process, an evolution of the story. And as I said, said at the beginning, I envy people who can plot beforehand and then who write that plot into their book, because I think they have an easier time after that first draft. I always have a really big structural edit after my first draft. And uh, the grass is always greener. I think if I plotted more, I wouldn't have that big structural edit. But at the same time, I wouldn't enjoy it so much. I love that process of writing. And I love discovering characters and, and following them wherever they go. So, you know, I, for me, it's important to have that joy in the writing, because if, if you enjoy writing it, I think people will enjoy reading it. Uh, I'm more on the plotter side and, and I'm envious of you that you can create something that's so complex and yet so beautiful because it, it hangs together. I mean, it, it works um, without planning it out before. And I was sort of laughing because the um, the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels actually has some post-it notes in it. And you see, you know, <laughs> Yes, it does, doesn't it? I think, and also I had a couple in the appeal as well. I do like post-it notes, but I just don't plot on them. And uh, yeah, I think the grass is always greener, isn't it? I think we, we just have to envy each other. Maybe we could have a challenge where you just don't plot at all. And I, I do lots of plotting and we'll see where we end up. I, I know I would end up in some greener grass in some like other continent than what I started on. <laughs> I'm, I'm not very good at avoiding rabbit holes if I don't make outlines. <laughs> oh, the rabbit holes. Yeah, the plot holes. My goodness. Yeah. Don't you live in fear of there being a plot hole in what you write and you don't notice it? Yes. Yeah, that, ke- that keeps me awake at three in the morning for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you you've partly already answered this but um you know we mentioned how the christmas appeal is sort of more the traditional english english village mystery you know the community theater putting on a christmas pantomime to you know repair the church roof whereas the mysterious case of the alperton angels is 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 darker it's more like contemporary suspense with 
cults and a missing child and an over-involved true crime reporter. Uh, in, and yet the same format works for both. So did, did you consciously set out to use a single style uh, to create two very different feels or did the, the, that sort of feeling of the books just sort of organically grow out of what you were, what you were writing? I did grow up organically I have to say when I started writing the Christmas appeal I did have in mind that I wanted it to be funny I mean the appeal um my first novel was funny it did have serious sides to it um you know there is darkness beneath and I think there is also in the Christmas appeal but it's it does wear its comedy up front rather rather more because I I did envisage people reading it before Christmas or just after Christmas when we're still you know, in the festive spirit. And I thought, yeah, people would like to laugh and um, let's uh, look at the funny side of things that happen in life. Uh, but there is darkness there, you know, don't worry. That's never far away from the surface. But I do have this dual thing uh, with me. I love comedy. I love writing comedy. All, all the plays I wrote were comedies. And I started, I wrote plays before I wrote for the screen. And um, they were all fu- sort of funny. And I think I had that need or that... Um, that love of making people laugh, which I think, well, as soon as you write something funny and people laugh at it, that's like a an addiction, and you want you want that again. So I love making people laugh, but I also love the darkness. I love mysteries, and the, I mean, uh, Stephen King was one of the the first authors I read when I was a, a teenager, and I, I love horror and I love um, crime and and dark mysteries too. So there's a big spectrum of um, you know genres that I will read and enjoy, and I'm gradually as I write I'm exploring them all so yeah they're I think the Christmas Appeal and the Alton Angels are almost like two sides of my spectrum. And speaking of sort of the hidden darkness within you know our, our emails and chat messages and social media posts sometimes reveal a side of us that we may be um, too pusillanimous to show when we're face to face with others you know we're, we're all kind of brave and we're hiding behind that keyboard um, and we may sort of unintentionally uh, reveal some of the more unpleasant aspects of our communities. Uh, so did, did this did this sort of characteristic of electronic communication sort of lend itself uh, to stories that are, are ultimately about secrets? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if um, if you look at the appeal and the Christmas appeal, they're all people talking behind other people's backs. Because when you send emails and you're within a community, you send emails to usually one person and um, you talk about other people. And that's it feels almost naughty to be reading that. It's like you're eavesdropping on characters who are talking about each other. And of course, people uh, will say a lot more, as you say, when when they're hiding behind their keyboard or when if they think they're only talking to one person who shares their view. Well, maybe they don't. And maybe they'll send that email to somebody else. So you, if you commit your thoughts to paper, you know, that's, that can be quite dangerous. And that's what my characters are doing, basically, as they email each other. So it can be quite thrilling to, to eavesdrop on people who, who didn't realize anyone would ever be reading their thoughts or reading their, their secret communications to other people. So yeah, to me, it's, it's the perfect way to um, demonstrate um, the way we deal with secrets and the way we deal with our relationships with other people within a community, because our, our relationships will differ with different people. And what I, I pay particular attention to with um, the appeal and the Christmas appeal is how people sign on and sign off their emails to different people. Like they'll be very effusive 
with some, or they'll be very deferential, or with others they'll be completely curt and short because they they don't value that person in the community at all. Uh, so you really get to know who thinks what about whom just by how they say hi, and that uh, that to me is a really thrilling aspect of writing these books and I I hope it's equally thrilling to read. Reading people's emails and chat messages is always thrilling whether we want to admit (laughs) that. Speaking of which, because people don't, I think, realize that electronic communication can last as long as as paper. I mean, a screenshot lives forever. I mean, have have you become more cautious before hitting the send button uh, since you've uh, been writing these novels? I think I probably have. But, you know, the thing that I'm most um, concerned about is that my spelling and grammar is correct, even in the the most, um, you know, ordinary email. Because I think, well, if I'm, you know, people know I'm a writer. If I send an email full of spelling errors or or terrible grammar or awful punctuation, um, you know, I'll... um, I'll just be so embarrassed. So even when I was up in emailing recently about um, a dishwasher that had a, a faulty part, and I have to send these emails and sending it to the engineer, I was checking my grammar, checking the spelling, making sure that this particular word was the right word to use. I didn't want anyone to think that I would ever send an email that just sounded awful and you know wasn't um, properly grammatical. <laughs> so yeah, I am much more um, you know aware of how my my writing is when I, I communicate with people very much so. And speaking of careful grammar checks, uh, you worked for, I assume, the British government in the past. Yes. Yep. I currently work for the U.S. government, and I find that people can be kind of obdurate about complying with Byzantine and bizarre bureaucratic rules and, and pedantic about format and, and other things that really have nothing to do with the substance of what you're trying to get across. So did, did you find that your experience as a government communications writer uh, helped or hindered writing novels that, you know, depending on how you look at it, either break the rules or are groundbreakingly refreshing? Um, or, or did your experience with the government have no influence on your fiction and it's just something that you, that you did? I think it had a lot of influence, but mainly because it um, it was so tricky for me at the time. Before I did that, I, I'd been uh, working on um, magazines that wrote about beauty products. They were trade magazines that went to people who sold beauty products to the public. So they were, you know, I, I loved it. I was a young woman, loved writing about beauty products, makeup, uh, hair care, um, you know, bubble bath, foam bath, pampering. It was fabulous. I burned out after 15 years and I got this job writing, um, for, you know, for the British government. And my goodness. I can't tell you how different the style of writing was from my beauty um, beauty days. So I was in at the deep end of writing for politicians. It could be speeches I was writing for. I could be writing for magazines that went to senior policemen. I could be writing for, you know, the Home Office, the Department for International Development I, I, voted, I wrote for. Um, it was in at the deep end. I had no idea what I was doing. I often had to write... Um, by the seat of my pants and learn really quickly from the people I was with at the time. So it was an absolute challenge to do. But that taught me so much about writing and about adapting my style to different people, to different departments, to to different genres. And I can't think now of a better way to have prepared myself for writing the style of novels 
that I write now where I'm writing from all sorts of different people's points of view, in particular the Alperton Angels, where I, I write from points of view of social workers, from um, police officers, from um, nurses, you know, all people from up and down the social spectrum, I'm writing from their point of view. And that started, I think, when I was writing all these sorts of different things for the wide um, remit of the um, the civil service communications agency that I worked for. Could, I could be writing about anything. And um, I wouldn't go back and I wouldn't do it again, but it really prepared me for what I do now. Well, I think I might actually pay to hear a British politician, uh, you know, talk about a bubble bath and, and lipstick in their in their speed. So. <laughs> Believe me, while I was writing it, it could almost have happened. <laughs> now, um, w- one of the things that you that you write um, in the uh, the Christmas appeal um, is a uh, you call it a Christmas round robin email. I think we'd probably call it a Christmas newsletter here in the, in the U.S. Um, and those are something that people either hate or love. It's, it's kind of like fruitcake. There's no in between. So, uh, which which camp do you fall in? The hate them or love them? I am fascinated by them, so I think I have to say I love them. And you know, it's it's interesting because I am like my my uh, you know my early middle age. I like to think at the moment. So I've I've read quite a few Christmas letters in my time from friends and relatives, and you know I've picked up on something over the years that the Christmas letter is where people round up all of their their family's um, activities from the year. They tend to focus on the achievements, and when the children are young, that these achievements come thick and fast, don't they? Year after year, they, as the, the youngsters, they hit their milestones, they pass their exams, they make their sporting teams, they go to college, they get their degrees, they um, meet someone, they get married. And suddenly, when they hit their 20s, the early 20s, the life starts to happen, doesn't it? And those achievements that they've they've been achieving from childhood suddenly dry up so what does what do the parents put in those christmas letters because um careers don't take off um exams have failed um jobs are lost um marriages break down affairs are had all sorts of, of things happen and you don't want that going in your christmas letter so what do these people write so i've got my very very first uh, christmas letter in the christmas appeal is just such a letter where um, a parent of grown-up children is putting a particular spin on what her family have been doing that for that year. So I, they do fascinate me in how we present ourselves and our families to the world. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'm fascinated and that means I must love them. It, it, they would be fascinating if people did were more honest in them, you know. <laughs> I would love to read an an honest one. Susan and uh, Timmy uh, flunked out of school and uh, Bob (laughs) back home in the basement. (laughs) It would be hilarious, wouldn't it? I would, I would love that even more, but yeah, it is, it is funny. Um, Yeah. I I can't say too much in case anyone I know is listening and they think, wow, Janice has noticed that about my Christmas letter. So uh, and um, do you uh, look for, for hidden meanings in, in the, the emails and things that you receive? I think I do. <laughs> I, think, I think I must do. Um, and I probably look for them in when, the ones that I send as well. It's, uh, I suppose it's a, 
an occupational hazard if you write a lot of emails you're always reading other people's emails to see if there's a, a subtext beneath I guess normally there's not is there in fact I uh, probably am a little more interested in what we give away accidentally in what we think we're we're not saying but that's you know, what we don't say isn't it you, you speak louder when you don't say something than when you say it sometimes that's true or when someone when you think you said x and someone interpreted as why it's um, that 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 is interesting and, and makes for a, a good plot potential well I'm, I'm writing whole books on that almost <laughs> um and i one one um side note that i, I did want to ask um because i'm not familiar with pantomime so what's a pantomime you mentioned that that was a, a british tradition uh, for for children Yes, it is. I mean, um, yeah, pantomime is. It has a really long history. I mean, it goes back really to the Middle Ages and to Europe, um, to the travelling minstrel shows that would tell um, fairy tales, um, usually very dark um, fairy tales, you know, the the Brothers Grimm, that kind of um, fairy tales, uh, with stock characters, and there'd be lots of mime, there'd be music, singing, dancing, and it would be very fun and festive. And this, over the years, has um, morphed, and it's particularly through the Victorian era that the pantomime we know today was was fixed there. It became um, a raucous a seasonal play that's put on in December, sometimes early New Year, sometimes into January, that tells um, a traditional fairy tale like Cinderella, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, Puss in Boots, all of those, a story we all know. Uh, with particular characters, there's lots of um, sort of cross-dressing. The principal boy is always played by a girl. The pantomime dame is always played by a man. And it's raucous. There's things like custard pie fights. The audience is invited to participate. So they'll shout things out at the baddies. They'll hiss and boo. Um, you know, the, the players will throw sweets um, to the children. And it's it's just a, a lovely, warm, um, Christmassy, festive um, production that everybody knows what they're going to get when you arrive. And um, often there's adult jokes that will go over the heads of the children or topical jokes as well about politicians. You know, it's very um, organic. And even if you go and see a, a proper West End pantomime, which they do, and, and they will star um, big celebrities, they'll be quite under-rehearsed and quite sort of rough and ready and it will be a, a, a laugh and, and a joke on stage. So I, if any Americans happen to be um, in London or in, in the UK around Christmas time, I'd recommend popping along to see a pantomime because they're a lot of fun. Um, even if you don't have any kids with you, they're, they're a laugh and you'll um, you'll come out smiling, I, I can guarantee. And of course, I've, I've touched before on one main thing about a pantomime is when you go to see one, you know what you're going to get. Only if you go to see the pantomime that's staged in the Christmas Appeal, you'll get something completely different. <laughs> thanks to um, thanks to a murder, and uh, I wouldn't recommend anyone go to see that one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a pantomime sounds like an interesting mix of uh, sort of you know light and fun, but yet if you look not far under the surface, you see some of the 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 darker, more cautionary uh, themes that you'd see, like, you know, in the, the unadulterated version of the, of the Grimm's fairy tales. I mean, does that, 
does that aspect of it also kind of lend itself to being a part of of a mystery, which is again about you know those those secrets that are covering up some of the the ugly truths that maybe we don't want people to know about, or or that might land us in prison. Well, you know, yes, yeah, funny you should say that because part of the uh, root of the pantomime is the Commedia dell'arte from Italy, oh. and um, that yeah, that was really dark, and the use of masks. And in well, as it's come down to us now, pantomime has um, costumes and and masked characters, characters that dress up as well. The pantomime cow is a, is two masked people, and um, the use of masks is very um, uh, I don't know what the word is. It's very emotive in in drama, and it's very dark because you can't see the person's face. And um, yeah, so there's there's always this darkness beneath the pantomime. Very much so. But of course, it's, it goes completely over the heads of the children who are loving it. It's the, the parents who will pick up on it. Now, it the, the Christmas Appeal has already been getting some um, some good press um, here in the U.S. Um, I, I think I, I shared a review from a friend of mine, Christopher Zagorski, who's a, a Raven Award winning blogger who has uh, not only posted on his blog, but also all over Facebook telling us we're idiots if we don't go get your book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. Thank you. (laughs) So for readers who don't want to be idiots, where can they find your book? They can find The Christmas Appeal um, in, it's published by uh, Atria Books, Simon & Schuster, and it's available wherever you would buy your books. From Barnes & Noble, from uh, Amazon, from independent book booksellers. you should be able to get it wherever. And if you can't get get to me on um, social media, on Twitter, or, or no X, uh, X as it's now called, and Instagram, and um, I'll point you towards where you'll find it. And uh, what would they find you on on Instagram? What's your your handle? Or I am at Janice dot Hallett H A L E T, and on um, X I am at Janice Hallett two L's two T's. Um, I'm, I'm there and I'm on my phone, on X and on um, Instagram far more than I should be. So you'll probably find me there. And uh, should folks uh, keep in mind that they're, they're, are they still called tweets? They're X's? Uh, like, I don't know. Are they? I, yeah. yeah hmm. X's just doesn't sound right. X, an um, X. I like tweet. Yes, we'll still call them tweets, um, but uh, <laughs> my, my, uh, should they worry their their tweets might uh, be fodder for a future book? Oh, do you know? I think quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, wouldn't it been awful if you'd have written a book um, based on tweets and then they changed it to X just before the book came out? Wouldn't that be a nightmare? Oh, that would be. Yeah, yeah, because it'd be too late to change the title of the book or anything in the book. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I'm sure it could be done. I mean, I'm sure you could write a book using tweets or X's. <laughs> and um, so, so what's next for you? Next, I am in the f- finishing stages of um, my first draft for The Examiner, which is my book that will be out in September 2024. So September next year. And that's The Examiner. And it's set in a university where um, an examiner is reading the coursework and uh, final essays for a small group master's degree. And um, he thinks that something happened on that course. He thinks that one of the course members 
died and all the others are covering it up. He's mm. not sure. He's asking the reader to read through everything and see if they agree. Mm. Academic skullduggery, that's all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are professors and teachers everywhere are saying, mm, yep, I get it. I can have and um, the mysterious case of the Alperton Angels that will be available in the US in January is that correct? Yeah I believe January the 23rd that will be out available to pre-order now wherever you pre-order your books and available to buy in all of the same wonderful places as the Christmas Appeal Mm -hmm, absolutely well that's all I have so thank you Janice for uh, taking uh, time out of the middle of your day to join me in the corner here and, and, and talk about your books Well, thank you, Alexia. It's been an absolute joy. And thank you, listeners, for tuning to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today has been Janice Hallett, author of The Christmas Appeal and The Mysterious Case of the Alberton Angels and the soon-to-be-coming-out The Examiner. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Please support the podcast by leaving a five-star rating or review on whatever platform you listen on. Follow the podcast on Instagram at podcast underscore cozy, on Facebook at The Cozy Corner Podcast, and the web at thecozycornerwithalexiagordon.com. Follow me at Alexia Gordon Author on Instagram, alexiagordon.writer on Facebook, and alexiagordon.net on the web. Support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. And until next time, thanks for listening.